On this week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to continue our discussion on spiritual grooming and spiritual abuse. On this week's episode, we're going to dive into Christian counseling. What is it and what is it not? And I'm going to talk about how one of the big issues within Christian counseling is how do you decide what to do with psychology? What do you do with psychology? And the reason why this is an issue, if you're listening to this, you didn't even realize that was an issue, is because evangelical Christianity views psychology as a secular or worldly, I'm putting that in quotations, something that is not to be trusted, something that is evil because it comes from the world and they see the world as the adversary. So what do you do with that? What do you do with the world's view of how to fix things in the mind versus God's view of how to fix things in the mind? And that's where you're going to see a lot of the differences on the foundation of biblical counseling, Christian counseling, or those who practice counseling from that perception. So we're going to dive a little bit into that today. We're also going to talk a little bit on an update on the family and how things are going there. Again, I'm going to advocate for the family. I'm going to put pressure on these agencies. I'm going to put pressure on this individual. I'm going to put pressure on the colleges that they went to. One is closed, so they can't do anything. But the other one that's still open and is still replicating these ideals that some folks are above the law. That some folks can do egregious things, but because they fit a certain standard, they're okay. That are still replicating this idea of an over-focus on behavior. Everything is behavior modification through shame and guilt referencing one's own spirituality. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines. And you're listening to Isolated, But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. All right, welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. I just got back from a three-day road trip to Dallas, Texas. I've never driven down there, at least that way, from Minnesota down to Texas, and I'm not in my 20s anymore. <laughs> Let's just say that. I'm extremely exhausted. Like I'm feeling it today, right? I didn't feel it yesterday per se, you know, but I'm feeling it today because we're talking 13 hours in a car one way and then 13 hours back. And so it's just the joys of road tripping. But during this road trip, I thought a lot about the family that I've been discussing on this podcast, spiritual grooming, spiritual abuse, and just the sadness Just the utter sadness that this stuff is allowed to continue on with no accountability. And one of the things I did today is I I do a lot of research before I get on the podcast and and talk about some of these things. Because it's nice to be in the know about what people are saying. 
And I listened to a, another sermon from the church that's connected to this seminary that this pastor graduated from. And if you're just tuning in, this all began when a family that is connected to me, that somebody that I know, had a pastor and his wife wake them up early one morning, and basically they were taking their daughter. And it was the daughter's 18th birthday. And so there's issues there. There's questions there. And there is no answers. Just, we did it, deal with it. And when the family pushes back, they're met with punishment. They're met with removal from their community. I don't like bullies. I've never liked bullies. And unfortunately, in these fundamental independent churches, there's bullies. And the bullies are running the show, and they're using God as the biggest bully. And that's not who God is. And that's not who God claims to be. But that's how they use him. Because they themselves are bullies. And accountability flows from the top down. There is no accountability from the ground up. What do I mean by that? So I was listening to another one of these sermons, and this one was by the president of this seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. So if you have Google, it'll take you about 10 seconds to figure out what seminary I'm talking about because there's not a lot of seminaries that are claiming to be independent and fundamental in Ankeny, Iowa. Okay. So I'm listening to this, and I want to thank him because everything he said has been a testimony to what I've been calling these groups out about. In fact, I wanted to play some of what he's saying because it's literally a commercial for these podcasts on spiritual grooming and spiritual abuse. So one of the things he said, which I had actually thought about this weekend, is that we need to keep people accountable, and it just is what he was saying. We need to keep people accountable, and that there's things that the Lord allows in our life to keep us accountable. And if you're not familiar with what that term means in these groups, is it means that somebody or something is going to keep you from sinning or going to make you feel guilty and heap shame on you if you're sinning. And sinning to them is anything you do that displeases God. But sometimes they take it a step further, right? And they say anything you do that displeases God or is outside of God's plan and things that we don't like. (laughs) So they take it that next level. So it's not just God, it's us, right? There's always this us. You're like, James, who is this us? And it's usually the people in leadership, the people who are making the rules up, who make the rules, claim the rules are from God, but don't abide by them if it doesn't suit them, which is what we've talked about in the previous podcast. So he was talking about accountability and how sometimes certain things keep him accountable. I can't remember the exact words that he said, but he talked about accountability. And what I think is important about accountability is it is from the top down in these circles, meaning God keeps us accountable as sinful people. So if we do something wrong, something he says is wrong, something outside of his plan, we are held accountable to that. But here's where it gets interesting, because as a Christian myself, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think there should be checks and balances on evil, right? Because people can do a lot of evil things. I think one of the biggest issues in these communities that I'm talking about is they underestimate human capacity for evil. I once talked to a church about what had been termed the banality of evil. The banality of evil was a term that was coined in reference to Adolf Eichmann. 
who was on trial in Israel for being one of the major organizers for the Holocaust. And the banality of evil is simply this. It's unoriginal. It's everyday little things that we do that harm and hurt other people that over a period of time add up to what might appear to the outside world as great harm. And that was kind of Adolf Eichmann's plea was, is that he was just doing what he was told to do. Just the day and day in and day out of everyday maintenance and workings of these camps. Just doing what he was told, just following orders. And that's why this person used this title to describe him. Because it was the idea of unoriginal. It was the idea of, yes, you were just going through the motions. You were just following orders. And look at the evil that you perpetrated, that you were a part of. You were a cog in one of the most destructive moments in modern history. Just doing what you were told to do. He wasn't some super maniacal madman genius from some Hollywood movie. He was an everyday person doing everyday things that led up to great evil. But not only do they do that, they underestimate the capacity for humans to do good. And this unfortunately infects everything that they do and talk about and teach. And it is like almost like a disease, like a virus. It It's contagious and you get it. And before you start having symptoms, you've already got it, but you don't realize it until the symptoms show up. And oftentimes, even then, you don't realize it until somebody else says something to you about it. I was talking to my partner, and my partner said that one of the biggest things for them was the realization of being kind of almost in this cult was when they hurt somebody greatly that had no idea. And the reaction of that person had a lasting impact on them. Because they realized that what they thought was supposed to be helpful and good was actually extremely harmful to someone. And so with this accountability, the accountability flows from the top down. So God to pastor to you. And they won't say it like that. They'll argue that point. But that's been my experience is that it goes from God to the pastor to you. And there might be a couple people below the pastor it goes through, but in these small independent fundamental, almost militaristic separatist groups, but in the end, it does flow down to you, right? And it's not necessarily always what God thinks is sin. Sometimes it's just what the pastor thinks is not right. For example, there is nowhere in scripture that says women can't wear jeans, for example. But you better believe that there were pastors in my lifetime, in my experience, that if you showed up in jeans and you were a woman, you were committing an egregious sin, a horrific sin. And they would call you out, even from the pulpit, if they had to, to heap shame and guilt upon you because you were sinning in the house of the Lord. But that's not in the Bible anywhere. There wasn't even genes back in the Bible. But that's what I mean. They take things from these obscure passages, and then because of culture that was 100 years ago, they try to say that's not only current for today, but it's what God wants. Not them, God. Not their beliefs, not their understanding, not their perspective, but God's. Even though they have no evidence or proof of that. And that's where Bible literacy comes in again. Because they are the gatekeeper to God's word. And they use archaic text 
that nobody could read that uses words and phrases like superfluity of naughtiness. So if you don't know what superfluity of naughtiness is, welcome to the club. There's a ton of people. I would suspect 99% of people don't know what the superfluity of naughtiness is. And so if you're like, James, I have to know now. I have to know what superfluity of naughtiness is. This is actually what it means. It basically means a lot of wickedness, a lot of bad things. Think of it like a superhero of bad. <laughs> you know, like you've got a lot of bad, okay? It's super badness, right? But there's also other terms like lasciviousness or my personal favorite, filthy lucre, which is not the nickname of a person from a comic book. That's <laughs> the thing that is in the King James Version of the Bible that doesn't apply at all, at least in terminology, to anything that anybody would relate to. Now, the concept, yes, but not the word. But that's where some of that subtle trap comes in. It's because sometimes if you don't know what the word means and the pastor knows what the word means but really doesn't know what the word means or has a perception of what the word means that he uses to control you, that's where we fall into these traps of spiritual grooming and spiritual abuse and where Bible illiteracy comes into play. And that's why oftentimes I feel like some of these fundamental independent militaristic places use the King James Version of the Bible, and say that it's the only Bible that you can use. Because if you use any other Bible, it's not right. And don't ever use the message, right, that tries to take things and put it in plain English so that everybody can understand. Don't use that because that's the worst possible thing you can use. Use this that you can't understand at all, but I can tell you all about it. And oftentimes I'm telling you things that come from my belief system based on culture of a hundred years ago, but I'm going to tell you it comes from the word of God and God himself. I'm getting off track again. Let me jump back to accountability. So accountability flows from God to the gatekeeper, the pastor, maybe down through some deacons or some elders, depending on how they run their church, down to you. It does not flow the other way. It does not flow the other way. So if you try to keep somebody accountable higher up than you, it does not work. They will kick you out. They will boot you out. It might not be right out of the gate, but they will do it. See you later. Because it's easier, as I said in the last podcast, to deal with you than to deal with the problem. And when you're in that environment, you're powerless. You're powerless at the bottom and you're powerless at the top because the system keeps you trapped. And the system causes you to manage your image so that when you actually do see something and you actually have the power to change it, you can't because the system puts pressure on you not to act out. And everything I've talked about in the previous podcast episodes are examples of what I mean by there is no accountability from the bottom up because I come back to this. I keep saying it. I have questions. I have questions for this pastor. Why did you do it the way that you did? Why did you, when groups that preach the Bible talk about family unity, that talk about cohesiveness in the family, that are against teenage rebellion, why would you enter that home and take that child out? And why would you wait till the 18th birthday? There's questions here. It makes you look guilty. It makes you look guilty of something. And that something can go all over the spectrum from making a huge mistake and not being properly trained and educated on matters of that nature and stepping outside your lane to sex trafficking. 
right? And I'm not saying either one of those are going out because I don't know because there's been no accountability. Just the action and the spectrum of maybe it was just an egregious mistake or there's something more sinister going on on the other side of the spectrum. Grooming, sexual conduct, inappropriate sexual behavior. But that's the gap that we're in because there's been no accountability. And if there has been, there's been no public discussion of that accountability. In fact, the only thing that I've been made aware of is that the family's been punished. Is that the family's been punished. And you're sitting here listening and it just seems backwards. Is that why could this person in a position of power, of spiritual power, be allowed to do this and nobody keep them accountable? Because really there's questions. And it goes back to my personal belief system here. Is that my personal belief is, because I've seen it happen again and again and again in these systems, is that there are certain folks who act a certain way, who look a certain way, who are above the rules because of that. And they are allowed to do things that other people in that same system will be punished for, but because they are more godly, I'm putting that in quotations, or act more like God, or can manage and hide their different, you know, their sin better than somebody else, something they're doing wrong better than somebody else, or are less honest about it, they get a pass. And that's what I mean by accountability does not go to from the bottom up because the family has sought answers. And the biggest answers they've been getting have not been helpful, but have been punishment. And I said that in one of the previous podcasts is you don't seek help either. Because when you do, instead of help, you often get judgment and punishment. And to go back to this president of this school, he used a sermon illustration. And I don't know where he was getting it from, but he simply said, somebody once said, Christ comes to save us from our sins, not in our sins. And then he goes on to discuss how growth happens when we're healthy. And I wonder where he's getting that at. Because that's not in the Bible. That is not biblical. It does not connect with the Word of God. Because unfortunately, it underestimates the evil that people can do. Because it says that basically... Christ came to save you from your sin. So if you are a believer, there is no more sin. Now, they won't say that, but you have to live as if there's no more sin. And that's unfortunately impossible. (laughs) And that's the problem because it's impossible and you can't do it. So therefore, you have to appear as if you're not. And so you spend all this time and energy appearing not to have any problems and be completely put together in your life. So when things really hit the fan, when things really go down the drain with your life, these folks can't help you. I've been there. They can't help you. They will boot you out and they will never follow up with you. And that's the other side of that accountability. So not only does it flow from the top down and it never flows from the bottom up, it's always focused on the negative. So people will keep you accountable, but they're not going to praise you in that accountability if you're doing well. Or if you come to them for help and accountability, but what you've done doesn't fit the right box, they will boot you out and they will never, ever, ever contact you ever again. When I was kicked out of the second (laughs) Bible college seminary, the one in Ankeny, it was because my wife left. My wife left. I was going through this horrible divorce. I was broken and my wife left. 10 credits to go. Got called into the acting president of the time who basically sat down and said, well, you can't go here anymore, but maybe you can go to one of these lesser colleges that are, you know, 
have lesser rules. But the point was this, is that you can't come here because you're no longer good enough. You're no longer in the right box. We can't help you anymore. Go to this other school. They take people like you. Yeah, they take people like you. But we don't. Bye-bye. Do you think that acting president ever called to check in on me to see how I was doing? (laughs) No. In fact, he would end up having his own marriage break apart. And I'm pretty sure they did the same thing to him. Because when I ask people about him who go there, nobody knows who he is, right? (laughs) So that's what I'm talking about. You can't be real. Accountability only goes one way. And it's not on the good things you do. It's always on the bad. So we'll keep you accountable if you're going to look at pornography. But we're not going to praise you when you don't do it, right? We're just going to hammer you to the wall if we find out you did. And then we're going to boot you out, kick you out of our communities, judge you, heap shame upon you, and not provide any actual help because we don't know how. And we won't admit that we don't know how. We'll just keep saying we do know how. (laughs) And how is, read your Bible more, love God more. Because clearly if you loved God more, you wouldn't be watching pornography. If you loved God more, you wouldn't continue to drink alcohol and drive. Because alcoholism is not a disease. Because you're just a drunkard. He also said that. That's a buzzword in these fundamental independent groups. There's no such thing as diseases of the mind. Right? There's, there's not alcoholism, right? Because that's a disease. No, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You're a drunkard. You could change easily. All you have to do is just do it. Just read your Bible more, love God more, pray more, and boom, you'll be cured. You'll never want to drink alcohol again. And we'll reinforce that by telling you all these stories of the one person we all know who became a believer and boom, was cured of alcoholism. They were cured. They were no longer a drunkard. But what if you are an alcoholic, right? What if you are laying in a ditch every weekend almost dead because you drink yourself into blackout? What about those people? Well, those people just get cast aside because we don't know how to help them because within our own framework, there's no way to help them. And that's going to lead into biblical counseling, right? So here's biblical counseling. Because on the one spectrum, we have Christian counseling, and then we move all the way into what I call biblical counseling. So Christian counseling could be simply this, as defined. You are a believer in Jesus Christ, therefore you call yourself a Christian. You have training in counseling or therapy, and maybe even sometimes job coaching, because I've seen some really interesting things, okay? But you are going to be able to provide therapy based on your training, and you can provide therapy or counseling because of your training to people who are Christians. And because you are a Christian, you can provide a unique perspective on that for them because you have a similar life experience. doesn't mean it's the same. It just means it's similar. So that's on the one end of the spectrum. All the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is I am a Bible counselor. I am a biblical counselor. I have gone to the workshops in Lafayette, Indiana, (laughs) where the pastor looks like Alex Trebek. I said it. He does. Yes, I have been to that church, if you're wondering. And so you go there and you take modules to learn how to counsel people solely from the Bible. And that's kind of the spectrum there. And there's all kinds of things in between. But what's interesting is, is when you really get into counseling and the understanding of what it means to be a Christian counselor, or a biblical counselor, you get into issues of 
the blending or merging or lack thereof of psychology and Christianity. How does secular worldly, as I said earlier, views connect with what the Bible says? Because that's really the, the issue when we talk about Christian counseling versus biblical counseling, is where do you fall out in that initial foundation? Because it will change how you do counseling and how you do therapy. For example, if you are a Christian therapist who, for example, has training in marriage and family therapy from an accredited university where there is a licensure through your state or a national licensure, you are going to do therapy differently than a pastor who took a few weeks of classes at a church in Lafayette, Indiana. And that's not to belittle that program. It's just to say, to give you the parallel extremes of what you're going to have in that spectrum. For example, this might be one thing that might be different. Christian counselors who, for example, license as marriage and family therapists, they are going to have to uphold the ethics of their particular board. Some of those ethics may include non-discrimination, reporting, things of that nature, education, compliance to not share what you have heard in the therapy session, and punishment if you don't meet those standards. For example, if you go out and you tell everybody what's going on in your therapy session and the board finds out about it because somebody makes a complaint and they find that there's truth to it, there's going to be consequences for that. If you have sex with your client, there is going to be a consequence with that. There's checks and balances built into that. Whereas biblical counselors may be connected to a board of some kind that's ran by churches, but they may not be as well. They might just be a pastor who took the courses and then claim they are a biblical counselor, meaning that you go to them and discuss your pornography problem. They might go tell their entire deacon board, and they are not upheld by a standard not to share that information. And if it gets found out because they punish you, there is no recompense for you. <laughs> Can't go and tell the board that, yeah, they shared my personal information that I thought would be private with the deacon board. Doesn't happen that way. I've seen it happen personally. You also get into the extremes of oftentimes on one end of the spectrum, psychology is acceptable, meaning that secular knowledge and wisdom and science have their place to help inform our decision-making process, to get us tools to help us to do therapy the best way that we can versus the opposite end of the spectrum, which says nothing good can come from anything outside of the Bible. So the Bible has everything that we need to help you. And I've experienced both sides of therapy in those spectrums. I've gone to Christian counselors and Christian therapists and people who are licensed marriage family therapists who are our Christians, all the way to staunch biblical counselors. And my view is not a positive one on that end of the spectrum. Because oftentimes my personal information was shared with people that it should not have been shared with. Oftentimes there was judgment, guilt, and shame heaped upon me, which was not helpful. <laughs> Often I was told things like, read your Bible more, which I was already doing. Pray more, which I was already doing. Love God more, which I was already trying to do. And then when none of that stuff really connected, it was you clearly have sin in your life and you're a bad and horrible person. So once you confess that then all these other things will start to work. Because my problem was significantly deeper than that. But they couldn't help me. And the more they couldn't help me, the more frustrated they got because the Bible just wasn't cut the way they were serving it. So therefore, it must be me. I must be broken and beyond help. So cast me aside. Don't refer me anywhere to get actual help. Throw me aside because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. 
and you're tired of wasting your time on me. And that's what I'm talking about. Because my problem was addiction. I grew up in a home where there was sexual, physical, verbal, mental abuse. And I'm very thankful for the addiction that I had. <laughs> you're like, James, that seems counterintuitive. But I am. And I've done a lot of work, a lot of work on addressing this. Because when I was a young person, my home life was scary, <laughs> to say the least. It was dangerous. There was drugs. There was strangers. And my addiction kept my personality safe and became part of my personality. And that's the depth of the problem that I'm trying to talk about. That was not being received because just reading my Bible more wasn't affecting change. Doesn't mean God is not powerful enough to change me. It just meant he needed to do a lot of different things over a long period of time. And biblical counseling, the way it was developed, was not going to cut it. In fact, oftentimes it kept me trapped. But I'm thankful for the addiction because it protected my personality. And you're like, James, what's that mean? Tell me a little bit more about that. So here I am, you know, four, five-year-old little boy. And my dad is out of control because he's on drugs and he's, out, he's intoxicated. And he's so inebriated that he has forgotten which end of the belt is the belt, the leather part, and which end is the big belt buckle. Because he's just lobbing it. Because he's angry, right? At me, a little four or five-year-old, right? Who's probably done something very minor. I don't even remember. And the belt buckle's hitting. And his face, back, arms, you know, wherever it's going, it's gone. But the addiction was like my best friend. Right? It was there with me in that moment. And this is all metaphorically, of course, but it was there with me. It soothed me. It comforted me. Told me everything was okay. That's not okay, right? That's not okay. What was happening was not okay. It was traumatic. But the addiction soothed my personality. It soothed me. It gave me hope, which sounds insane. But if you talk to people who have addiction early in their life, you can see it as a medication. You can see it as a balm to heal, to give you courage and confidence. The problem is, is that eventually that best friend becomes your worst enemy because then it protected me from trauma. But eventually later in my life, it became a determinant towards mental health. It was no longer allowing me to cope because I was no longer in that situation. And I tried to use it to cope with other situations and it became unhealthy. Not that it wasn't unhealthy all the way through, but at least in my childhood, it was doing something to keep me safe. I look at other parts of my family that had, or other individuals who have had different things happen or similar things happen, and addiction wasn't necessarily their way to cope, and their personality became fragmented. I read a really good article by Thomas Fuchs called Fragmented Selves, the Temporality and Identity in Borderline Personality Disorder. And I'm going to read a little bit of this just to give you an idea of what I mean by this fragmentation. Fuchs says, patients with borderline personality disorder lack the capacity to establish a coherent self-concept. Instead, they adopt what could be called a postmodernist stance towards their life, switching from one present to the next and being totally identified with their present state or affect. Instead of repression, their means of defiance consist in a temporal splitting of the self that excludes past and future as dimensions of object consistency, bonding, commitment, responsibility, and guilt. The temporal fragmentation of the self avoids the necessity of tolerating the threatening ambiguity and uncertainty of interpersonal relationships. And then he goes on to say, the price, however, consists in a chronic feeling of inner emptiness 
caused by the inability to integrate past and future into the present and thus establish a coherent sense of identity. That's how my addiction protected me. Because in my addiction, even though it was harmful and would become much more harmful later in life, in that moment, it allowed me to keep my personality and see it coherently as a whole. And eventually it developed an identity that was more consistent and less fragmented. Because every time I felt that deep emptiness, and the article describes that, every time I felt that deep emptiness, every time my feelings were invalidated to an extreme, I could go and use my drug of choice, which soothed that, which filled that void, which filled that emptiness, instead of allowing my personality to fragment and allowing me not to identify a coherent whole of myself. Now, with that being said, that addiction, unfortunately, became part of my personality. It's interwoven. So for me, addiction will always be part of my story. It will always be something I struggle with because as it became part of my mental constructs, it also caused my brain to develop in certain ways as well. And through abstinence, sobriety, and work, my brain has healed in some ways. But the healing of my brain did not heal the damaged parts. It simply healed by making workarounds around the damaged part. Now, if you're a biblical counselor, what I just said might have made no sense whatsoever because they exclude outside sources. And unfortunately, because they do that, and they'll say they don't do this, but they do, mostly in practice, is that the Bible does not talk about those things. It does, maybe, perhaps, when it talks about people who are possessed by demons because they disassociate and they're doing all kinds of things like that. So either you're possessed by a, a demon, right? Or you need to get the Lord. I mean, that's that's where we're at here when we go to that extreme. And I'm not saying biblical counseling can't help people with spiritual problems or minor issues, like deciding how to, for example, maybe pray more or add prayer in, more consistently into your life or you know how to study your Bible better. Or making a decision whether you should become a missionary. You know, things of that nature. Not things like addiction. But that's the problem is because there's such a lack of training is that people take one or two classes or take a couple modules at a church and then they have just enough knowledge to be dangerous and then they think they can do anything because they have this training. And part of me wonders if that's what happened with this pastor is because he has some training, maybe at Bible college, like one or two classes on biblical counseling, that he thought he could go into a home and take a child out of the home or, excuse me, an 18-year-old girl, 18-year-old adult who just turned that, out of the home. And now that maybe there's realization that that was not maybe the proper or best thing to do, but now there's no accountability, so we're just going to roll with it. And that's the sad part to me because it seems, it appears that there's some issue here. And yet, maybe there's somebody that should be keeping this person accountable. Maybe there's an organization that could be keeping this person accountable, but they're stuck in their own system and it prohibits them from helping. It prohibits them from doing something to go against themselves. And yet, maybe all this great harm that this family has endured Maybe there could be some justice, because that's what's lacking here. Justice. Nobody's taking responsibility for this. Nobody's sitting here saying, you know, yeah, I made a mistake. Here, let me make this right. Let me return your daughter. Let me resolve things with you. Or higher up than that, you made an egregious error by doing this. You need to have some more education. 
You need to get some help yourself. None of that. Because it's protecting itself. The system is protecting itself. And great harm is happening. The banality of evil. Everyday stuff adding up to great harm. As I said in the last podcast episode, I am going to write a letter to Continental Baptist Missions because that's the mission board that supports this pastor. And I ask that my listeners do too. Their Their website is public. Their information on the website is public. I'm not saying like, you know, threaten them or say anything nasty. I wouldn't want that. What I'm saying is this. Write them and ask for accountability. Write them and ask for answers because they're a public organization. They should be keeping missionaries accountable. That's why boards like that exist, so that missionaries don't go out on the mission field and do whatever they choose to do. And I've seen and heard examples of this where missionaries go out there and there is no accountability because they're their own mission board, right? And they take advantage of the disenfranchised or they take advantage of the churches back home that pay for their life and they're not doing any ministry. I always get a little hesitant when I interact with like fifth generation missionaries from the same place (laughs) that all live there and over like five generations, there's a little itty bitty dying church and they're requesting tens of thousands of dollars every other year to continue their lifestyle there. But that's what missionary boards are for is to keep that stuff in check, to keep people accountable. So why is this board not doing that? And if they have, why have they made a public statement that we are looking into this, that we are seeking to get clarity in this? And I would say it's because of that, and this is my personal opinion, is that they've probably called this person or they know him and they said he fits the right box. We can check off all the right things that we know make a good person, that make a good Christian, that make a good godly man. So therefore, there's no more need to look into it. And that is, if that is what's happening, is foolishness. Because it underestimates the capacity for people to do evil. And it underestimates the average everyday things that we do that add up to great harm in the lives of other people. And it protects those who may be doing very hurtful and harmful things in secret. And it adds a layer of protection for them. And I think of Ravi Zacharias. I mentioned him on the last podcast or a couple podcasts ago. And his ministry. Where they knew something was going on, but they did nothing about it. In fact, when it was made public, they tried to do things to cover it up. I hope that's not what's happening with this agency. And at the same time, I've seen it happen. So part of me thinks that there's something going on here and that part of me thinks that they're covering it up because it's easier to deal with people who say there's a problem versus the actual problem. And we see this again and again and again when these big evangelical superstars fall because they're everyday human beings with everyday issues that somehow bought into the lie that they're different than that, (laughs) that they're better than other people because that is a lie. That is deception. And in fact, usually when you're starting to think you're better than somebody else, it's time to check in because <laughs> you're wrong. Okay, And that often leads to judgment and harsh treatment of other people. That we would not like it if it was done that way to us. Which the Bible talks about when it says, love God above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's okay as long as the neighbor looks, acts, and is exactly like me. <laughs> 
but it's not if they're any way different than me whatsoever. And that's unfortunately the trap that I feel that these folks have fallen into. So again, how can we help the family? Write to this organization, ask them to keep this individual accountable, to do some investigation. And I'm just going to keep going on at it. I know people are listening to this and they're probably getting angry at me because they're like, James, why do you keep on about this? Because I myself have been personally affected. Advocacy is always personal. Activism is always personal. And I know that people can hurt people using their own spirituality and then take the higher ground as if somehow they're better. And the agencies that are supposed to keep them in check, keep them accountable, do not do it. And I'm asking them to do something different than what they normally do. Do something different. Investigate and keep people accountable. Because let's say in five years you find out that there was much more sinister things going on there. You better believe that I'm going to remember and I'm going to say I publicly asked this agency to investigate and there was no investigation. And then you can add yourself to the list of many other individuals and organizations where something was happening that was odd enough to where people were like, something's going on here. My gut says something's going on here, but you refused or maybe even intentionally didn't investigate because it's easier to deal with the people than the problem. So this family needs help, right? They need you to help and support them. And I don't mean financially. I mean with activism, with advocacy, with these organizations, keeping these people accountable, and they need financial support, right? Because their whole life in one morning, I snapped my fingers if you couldn't hear that, changed overnight because of the actions of a pastor. A pastor who has currently said lots of things on his last sermon about the family and about how good his family was. Well, that's great. That's great. I'm glad your family is good. You disrupted another family. And they are hurting and they are in pain because of your actions. Regardless if you're right or wrong, that is the outcome. So if you're listening to this, they need support. They need support. And remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family, and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, and maybe you are, but you're not alone.